Hello, and welcome to this edition of Secure Networks, the Index Packet Forensic Files, with your host, Michael Morris. This week's very special guest is Jen Miller Osborne, Deputy Director of Threat Intelligence and Security Expert for Palo Alto Networks Unit 42. Jen, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. Uh, so I started in cybersecurity 100% by accident. Um, I'd actually initially been studying genetic engineering. I had a full scholarship to college. And I realized that I really hated being in a lab for a long period of time. A lot of the tasks were very repetitive. Um, and I had no idea what else I wanted to do at that point. Uh, I knew that I'd have to switch college colleges or look for more scholarships and things like that, which also wasn't appealing. Um, but one thing I had done growing up is I'd spent a lot of time studying foreign languages. I was lucky enough to start in elementary school. And I knew that the military, in particular, I was interested in the Air Force, had programs where they would train you in a language and, you know, I'd get work experience. I wouldn't be running up bills trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And my goal was basically to learn a skill while, quote unquote, figuring out what to do with the rest of my life. Um, and it just so happens that I ended up working for the government when the government was starting to get into cybersecurity. And since it wasn't a field at the time, they essentially asked some of the more technical people for volunteers, essentially, like, hey, we've got this new thing we're looking at doing. Are you interested in going through a training course and maybe doing it? And I also enjoyed computers growing up. So I thought, well, that sounds fun. Sure, I'll volunteer for this. You know, this will be a fun little break from my my normal routine. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is. And about 20 years later, turns <laughs> out that this actually became a career. And I really enjoy it. Um, I love what I do. But it was one of those things where 100% unplanned, totally an accident, just yeah, just happened to be there when I could volunteer for and kind of get the opportunity. Um, I stayed with the government for a little over know, 15 years or so. And then I switched to the private sector. Okay. Palo Alto Networks is actually my first and only job outside of any sort of government work. Okay. Um, and it's been, it's interesting. It's definitely a big change from government. <laughs> oh, I can imagine that. I can imagine that. So tell us a little bit about the mission of Unit 42 there at Palo Alto Networks and how your team works. What sort of problems you get called into research? Yeah, I'm glad to. So Unit 42 is the threat intelligence team for Palo Alto Networks. And what I mean by that is we don't have separate internal teams for it. We don't have ones that are devoted to any particular product. We are the, the overarching threat intelligence team. And because we aren't devoted to any particular product or service, it actually frees up a lot of our time to be able to do that longer term more in-depth research that you just don't have time when you're tied to some sort of product development life cycle or mm -hmm. constantly having to push out new versions. So it lets us do that. And then we are able to in turn work very closely with all of our product teams to ensure that we have um, good protections in place for our customers. A big focus of the team and something that makes us different um, from a number of our competitors is that we believe threat intelligence should be shared freely. It's not something we have a separate service for, a separate subscription for. Um, we publish everything on our blog. We are a founding member of the Cyber Threat Alliance, which is a group of competitors, essentially, who've all come to the same realization that we did. And is that to effectively protect our customers, we need to have a better an understanding of the threat landscape outside of the data sources that are available to us. Because no one company or no one source has a complete visual of everything that these attackers are doing. Mm -hmm. And by sharing this with other organizations, you might have different visibility. It lets us put together a more cohesive picture of what 
the actors are doing and how they're doing it and how well resourced they are, which in turn affords both better protections and it allows for broader awareness of what's actually going on right now. So people can be aware of the threats they're actually facing and then make a more informed decision for um, how they need to be protected by that. We feel that the, th the threat intelligence component is what needs to be shared for people to make those decisions. It's what you do with it after that would be the, the, the magic or the secret sauce. How you then use it in protections to stay safe is the what we, we view as kind of the, the secret component, the component that, that we wouldn't share. It's how we operationalize threat intelligence. Okay. But the knowledge itself is valuable to anyone. Right. No, absolutely. And I, I really enjoy and fascinated by some of the insights you all write in your blogs of some of these new threats. So when you look at the cyber threat landscape, um, how have threats really been evolving over the last year in particular? Um, and how rapidly has the volume of unique attacks been increasing? I wouldn't say the volume of unique attacks has increased necessarily. What I would say, especially over the past year, is we've really seen an explosion in ransomware and an expansion in their capabilities and the tactics that they use to try to um, get money. The traditional guidance that we used to give was, you know, if you had good backups and they were secured, you knew you could restore for them, they wouldn't get affected by ransomware, that you were effectively safe. Even if you were hit by ransomware, you would still be able to restore your network so you didn't have to pay to get your data back. Ransomware operators recognized that. So what a number of them shifted to was pre-exfiltrating sensitive data. So instead of encrypting immediately, we'll go in, look around, identify what looks to be uh, high value information for an organization. And then they'll exfiltrate that first. And then they'll execute the ransomware and encrypt everything. And what they're doing with that, we're calling that um, double extortion, is they're, they're ensuring that the, the target's going to have to pay. Even if you had good backups, so you can restore from those, that's great. But now you're also at risk of this proprietary information being published or potentially even sold to competitors if you don't pay the ransom to get it back. So they're, they're getting around some of the traditional protections that we would have normally um, advised people to do. And another thing we're starting to see is some of them are also going old school and they're doing um, DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service, where they're looking to take down companies' websites or businesses to affect it that way. And they're actually having some success in that as well. So we've really seen just a massive uptick in a lot of, especially criminal type activity, which makes sense. It's an easy way to make money. A lot of people now are a uh, the only thing you have to do is be online now, right? So, <laughs> yeah, it's a sad state of where things have to evolve to, right? Um, yeah, totally agree. So, let's talk about a really big one in the news recently: the SolarWinds Sunburst hack. Obviously, very concerning. Uh, a lot of press on it. Tell us uh, exactly what happened. How was it found? And so far, what has been the impact? So, we're not entirely certain exactly how far I discovered it, but they uh, did the initial disclosure. Okay. Um, uh, it was on right before weekend and the initial disclosure happened in early December and it was that their red team tools had been stolen in a, in a breach. Um, I think everyone at that point wondered what else was there to the story because that's not something that no one just happened to like log into their systems and go, oh, look, red team tools and take those. We, all, we were all kind of wondering what was going on. And we had a nice quiet weekend, thankfully, because that is not the way the rest of December went. 
<laughs> and then the following week, they published that um, they had been hacked. This was related to uh, compromised solar winds Orion DLL. And that's really when we started to get a feel for how broad of a problem this was going to be. Um, and that's the last time anyone slept for the next three weeks, I think, <laughs> if, if you worked in this industry. Um, and the attack was unique in a number of ways. One of them is that the victims were punished for doing the right thing, right? Patching, you're supposed to patch. You're supposed to right. download these updated programs when they become available and you trust your, you know, your third party vendors and suppliers that they're going to be secure. And what this highlighted, and this isn't the first supply chain attack we've seen like this, but this is one of the uh, more far reaching, and I think might actually drive some policy changes at this point because of the number of organizations affected and the fact that a number of them were governments, wow. um, law enforcement, a number of different technology providers. We just recently saw uh, ANSI, which is the French cybersecurity agency, they just published a report, I believe yesterday, noting that they had a similar style of attacks, which they have also tied back to uh, Russian-based actors, a group that's called Turla, that did a similar kind of supply chain thing, targeting organizations there. Um, so we're really seeing that this is going to end up driving a different way of people thinking about security. You can't assume that things that are coming from trusted third parties are, you can't trust them anymore. Right. There's a possibility that an attacker is looking to take advantage of that trusted relationship because they know you're more likely to just run things or, or do respond to it. Um, so it's, I think it's going to change a lot of cybersecurity postures for people. And I'm actually glad it's highlighting a number of these issues where you really have to be more of a zero trust kind of environment, you know, right. trust, but verify. Right. And a new, <laughs> that's what I was just going to comment, a new whole new level of zero trust, right? Uh, yep. Uh, different meaning to it, but or additional meaning to it more than anything. So that actually kind of leads to my next question, which is, are the, do you think these supply chain attacks are kind of the new trend for opening back doors into co corporate infrastructure? It seems like so many tools uh, and, and applications have, you know, these auto update services, especially for SaaS based uh, tools and solutions. So is this the new kind of the new norm in terms of the, the entrance way, shall we say? I wouldn't say it's the new norm. Both of the, the two recent cases have been very, they were clearly well-planned and well-executed and they required a level of resourcing and development and financing that you don't see um, across the vast majority of people that carry out attacks, especially say the criminal style attacks. Mm -hmm. These are require a lot of planning and a lot of time um, and an understanding that as in this instance, once it's been discovered, all of that is now burned. So they have to have that value and that use case there to justify that investment. I don't think we're going to start see this being, you know, something cyber criminals take advantage of, but this is definitely something where if you're espionage focused, this is the kind of this is the way you'd like to get in because it helps you remain under the radar for a very right. long time. And it, you don't have to worry about getting caught through some traditional means, but I don't think they're going to stop spear fishing by any, right. any stretch of the imagination. Right. <laughs> no, the simplest, simplest method first probably is in most cases, but uh, no, you bring a good point of, you know, this may be more of an avenue for nation state uh, types of attacks. So 
that kind of lends the next question that I've, I've got, which is how can businesses be confident in software and application updates they're getting from their various vendors? All of us as corporations have multiple vendors in our environment. So how do we trust but verify? How do we do that verifying that you mentioned? You have to have security postures in place to watch for some of these, just to watch for malicious behavior regardless of the source. And that kind of leads to where I'm headed. What are some best practices you can recommend to monitor and look for threats like this? The uh, best thing you can do is to have some sort of federated platform for these things. So we have one called Cortex XOR. Uh, other organizations sell one as well. And it's a platform which helps ingest all of the different types of logs and things you can get from systems to start identifying anomalous behavior and helping also you triage when you get some alerts in. So instead of there being, you know, 50 million flags being thrown, it helps do the evaluations to kind of rack and stack them and rank them in, hey, no, this one's really bad. You need to look at this now Mm -hmm. and cut through some of the noise of there's 20, you know, 20 million other things that are maybe bad, but this way it'll help you find the the more important things quicker so you can Mm -hmm. um, remediate faster if you need to remediate. No, that, that's an excellent point. Um, when when you work with a customer on a potentially a new threat uh, and you're helping them investigate, what are key pieces of information that your unit, Unit 42, would need to get to the bottom of a threat quickly? Uh, ideally, if they've identified the potentially malicious files. Those are nice. Uh, okay, we'll yeah. <laughs> After that, uh, the most what we typically are looking for is log data. Okay. Whatever kind of log data we can find um, that they might have stored surrounding the affected system or systems. Mm-hmm. So we can start hunting through that, looking for anomalous behaviors, C2s, beaconing, lateral movement, all those sorts of things that you can find if you've actually got, if you're collecting logs and keeping them. So that's mm-hmm. one of the, one of my big footstops for effective logging. It is really, really important. Um, it doesn't seem super necessary, but when it, is something that would be useful, you, you really need it. You mm-hmm. know, you don't want to need them to identify these kinds of things, but logging can be really, effective logging can really be critical in determining how the actual breadth of an intrusion. No, that's that's a great point. Now, what, what happens in the case, and just a little addendum to this, um, what happens if they, they don't have enough logging or, you know, obviously as you are aware, many threats try and wipe logs. What, what, what then do you look for? That can actually be an indicator that there's something going on because the logs have disappeared. Huh. Um, the problem is that they're gone. Right. <laughs> there's, there can be, you know, some different ways around that with trying to have backups or storage. It's not something that's been effectively done for, I think, many places. And that also highlights why you need different types of protection to monitor for different mm-hmm. things. So in the case of wiping the logs that... Um, is an issue if you're doing forensic remediation because you don't have those. But what what they were actually erasing to hide, you should hopefully have had something that could have told you that was happening and it was bad, or at least it was something that you should pay attention to, right? Like this particular machine should not be trying to authenticate to everything it can reach <laughs> with the same passwords, you know? And in some cases when they use PowerShell, they'll, they'll be over a series of seconds. Right. These are the kind of things that are anomalous and you need to need to at least do a sanity check on. Right. Are, 
So are there some key elements to a cybersecurity infrastructure, right? You, you mentioned multiple layers before uh, that can really help SOC teams to investigate and hunt for threats like, like this type of breach, like the Sunburst breach. Having a federated platform, such as I mentioned um, yep. our XOR, really helps quite a bit because you have a centralized platform where you can search through all of the collated log data and alerts and things like that. So you're not having to, you know, you're not having to log into your seam and then you go, go log in over here. We keep mm -hmm. these logs for this. And then there's our snort instance over there. It's all one platform. And that's really critical for hunting and for doing any sort of effective monitoring and for doing effective security. If you can't get an actual good idea of what's going on in your network and have visibility into it, how are you gonna stop it? Yeah, excellent point. And, and that's one of the things we try and highlight with, with how we work with you in Palo Alto as well is you know, helping have that network data to have visibility to it. So no, excellent point. Um, kind of turning it just a little bit con from a consumer point of view, obviously these are business threats. Should consumers be worried as well about backdoors opened in common home applications and security software? Uh, you know, many, many of us at home users even use, you know, Office and various browsers and other SaaS-based apps. So what can they do and should they be concerned? Uh, they don't necessarily need to be as concerned as organizations, depending on the person. Some people are actually targets you see a lot with, especially journalists and some things where mm. they look to compromise them. But especially with IOT, that is something I feel consumers should be concerned about. There are a number of security risks outside of it just being a backdoor. I know there have been a bunch of things studied where researchers have taken some things apart. In some cases, actual malicious actors have done it, you know, logging into baby webcams yeah. and terrifying children. A number, there's been a lot of things around children's toys, unfortunately. You know, being able to track the location of children, all of these kind of strange things where you wouldn't want a stranger to have access to. Right. So even if you're saying, you know, it's not, I'm not super worried about the back door because I don't care about, not concerned about ransomware getting on like my kid's watch. But what if, you know, this is being used more maliciously to track your child, to groom your child. It's, it's another way you can even look at with some of the stalkerware kind of components where they do that with adults as well. Yeah. So it should be concerning. And this also is potentially a backdoor into your home network, right. right? So you have all these things sitting in your home network. So that's a potential avenue where attackers could sniff some other traffic. Maybe they're looking for some banking information. Um, one of my favorite scenarios that I, I think is gonna happen, it hasn't yet, but I'm entirely convinced it's gonna happen soon for IoT is, um, so everyone has you know, smart fridges and stoves and all of this stuff. I really don't know why they all need to talk to the internet, but that's just me. So what happens when someone decides um, they ransomware your fridge and or your stove two days before Thanksgiving? And it's you pay us or you're going to lose all of your groceries, you know, things like that. And it seems kind of silly, but it can also get malicious when you look at people taking control over um, central air heating systems. Yeah. You know, if you do that in a building, even potentially someone who's a super tech geek who might have like a server, a little mini server farm or something, you can cause it to melt down. You know, you can cause a lot of real actual damage through some of these insecurities. And especially when you look at some of the medical devices, like, that's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, there should no, not be back. Those, those. <laughs> those are extremely scary. Absolutely. But you know, they're built for ease of access and ease of use. And they're not necessarily thought of people building those aren't thinking like 
I would think necessarily, right? Their job is to create this life-saving device that will help people. So they want to make it easy to use. They want to make it accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is then you have people that are malicious that are going to take that and turn it around just so you see ransomware attacks against hospitals going on Mm -hmm. to make a profit. So it really is something that needs to be just baked into things as this is just our way of life now. Yeah. And the scary thing on that point, uh, the IoT devices is, I mean, I've got a number of things here myself that I I always am trying to keep updated. Those are things people often don't update as frequently, um, which which is an interesting and uh, more concerning element to the whole thing. So uh, switching gears a little bit, um, I saw you released an announcement just, uh, I think it was last week, actually, of another new threat uh, called Bendy Bear. Can you tell us about that and and what folks should be watching for? And, you know, what what have you found around that specifically? Sure. Bendy Bear um, is another example of sophisticated espionage malware. In this case, it's been widely attributed by the research community and a couple of governments to uh, the PRC as being state-sponsored activity. We have no reason to disagree with that. Um, And it's what makes Bendy Bear unique is how very stealthy it is for the limited functionality that it has. So it's shellcode, it's big for shellcode, it's 10,000 bytes, but it's that big because they wrote a number of features into it to try to make it very, very difficult to detect and find on a network, even difficult to know if it had ever been there if you're doing any sort of remediation. Took a lot of steps to remain stealthy. It uses modified RC4 encryption in chunks when it's talking to its C2 and it's doing that over port 443. So it's hiding in SSL traffic. Uh, The modified RC4 makes it harder to reverse. Doing it in chunks with unique session keys for each one makes it harder to reverse because then you need that every time to be able to decrypt it. Um, It changes its run state every time it executes and it makes anything that might have been left behind just gobbledygook. So there's nothing for, there's nothing to signature on. There's nothing for a researcher to find. There's no pattern, nothing. Uh, It wipes the DNS cache every time it looks for its C2. So that's not there either. So it forces uh, an IP resolution whenever it does that. And it hides itself in a legitimate static Windows 10 uh, registry key that's for configuration. They put, whoever designed this, put a ton of effort into making sure it wasn't detected. And it can also download files and it will also execute and run them in memory. What's interesting is that is literally its only functionality. It just sits there and waits for someone to send it some sort of malware but there was this much time and effort put into making sure that this remained undetected to be able to do that. We weren't able to recover how it was dropped onto the system. The analyst who, who um, reversed this, he actually had to build a custom loader for the malware to get it to run, to be able to start analyzing it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it's been out uh, in the wild for, for quite a while, unfortunately. The version that we analyzed, um, the earliest one we could find of this malware family was dated back to 2015. Okay. And it is related to a previous malware family called Water Bear that was discovered by other researchers that has been active since at least 2009. Oh, so it shows a long development life cycle and also shows that this has potentially remained under the radar since this particular version, just this since 2015. Wow. So yeah, we wanted to make sure we wanted to get that out really widely because we're concerned that could be a significant issue because it's so stealthy and because it's gone so long without being uh, reported on. 
No, outstanding. That's uh, and that's why I wanted to bring it up because it, the the insights that your team is coming up with is is just tremendous for the broader cybersecurity community. So no, certainly appreciate that. So looking forward, um, I always like to close my kind of interviews with a, you know, what do you what do you see coming down the pipe, right? So for our listeners. Uh, what's one thing to really look out for or think about over the next six to 18 months? And I know that's a, that's an eternity <laughs> in the cybersecurity space, but uh, what, what do you think one thing they should be really paying attention to or, or looking out for? Uh, for individuals, I would start wanting, I'd suggest people start considering their own security posture, especially as we have so many things that are connected from home that we have running, you know, everything, your TVs, this, that, and the other, start, you know, be cognizant of the router that you're using, actually do some of the, the housekeeping that's recommended where when you log in to configure it, make sure you change the default admin password that it comes in, you know, make right. sure you password protect your network. A good thing to do, this is something I do myself, all of my IoT stuff is on a separate segmented network. If it does not run over the same one that I run my laptops off of or my work stuff off of just to keep that traffic segment and kind of in its own area. And that's also a good thing to do. And those are relatively, this for some people that aren't technical, this is probably going to sound like there's no way you can do this. It's actually relatively simple. And there's step-by-step guidance you can find online and provided with any of your routers. So that those are just some basic things I would consider. And then moving forward, you know, make some informed decisions when you're purchasing things. Does this really need to be connected to the internet? Is this something I really want to have exposed? Yeah. Um, yeah and just thoughts about that. People are going to, I think people are going to need to start thinking more like corporations in some cases, because they're also targeted as a general rule for criminal components. But I mean, they've been exploiting 419 scam, Nigerian princes, Ransomware initially started going after, you know, individuals and small organizations before they realized they could make way more money targeting large ones. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's going to go away. People are still valid targets and you can still make money off of them, even if it's just installing crypto jacking malware Mm -hmm. to mine Bitcoin and kind of seal your electricity and some of your resources. So, (laughs) yeah, it's it's just going to be an awareness thing. I think people are really going to have to start keeping not necessarily keeping up and living and breathing it, but having a, a level of understanding that all of the risks and the benefits of things you're introducing into your life and into your household with all uh, of these different devices. It, that's tremendous insight. Is there anything key as that ties to some corporate and business infrastructures? Um, you know, with all of us working at home or many of us working at home, um, I, I can see that being a vulnerability, kind of a backdoor operation, even into the corporate environment. But is there other things you think many corporate entities or government entities really need to be looking out for? They need to ensure they've got their cyber hygiene good before chasing after the next right thing, right? The current thing everyone <laughs> wants to talk about is 5G. Oh my goodness, 5G this, 5G that. And it's, if your network isn't secured against a ransomware attack, um, that's really where you need to be focusing because you are much more likely to be impacted by ransomware over the next forever, essentially, <laughs> than you are to have to worry about anything 5G related, at least for years. So just make sure your, your protections are in place for the actual threats that are still there. And once you have those kind of good postures in place and you have good defense, mm-hmm. then start, you know, worrying about things that aren't necessarily in wide use yet. 
No, that's, that's great inputs. Jen, thank you for taking time and sharing your tremendous insights with how to better secure networks. We'd ask our listeners to tune in next time for another edition of the Endace Packet Forensic Files. For more information about Endace's network packet capture platform and our integrations with our fusion technology partners like Palo Alto Networks, please go to endace.com. Again, Jen, thanks for joining and have a great day. Thanks for having me. You too.